Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Eric Barreto. Uh, Eric and I are old, dear friends. The first time for him to be on the show, uh, been, he's early on someone I wanted to get on, and we uh, we finally got something to work out uh, this week. So yeah, he uh, he's an old friend. We went to we went to school together, uh, went to seminary together. Oh, oh, now twenty years ago, probably. And he uh, now is a New Testament uh, scholar, I and mean, he was then when I met him. But he's a professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, and the author of uh, numerous books and articles, and he just uh, and a great preacher and uh, public speaker. If you ever get a chance to check out anything he's got out on the web, I, I encourage you to do so. Eric's uh, Eric's a great guy and a great scholar and a great mind, and I'm uh, I'm jazzed to get to have him on the show. Our text this week is Exodus chapter 32 verses 1 through 14. Exodus 32 verses 1 through 14. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so that you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice and pass the show on to others so that they may benefit and enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Eric. Right, so let's uh, take a look at this. Our text this week's Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. Um, Eric, would you be, would you like to read the passage and I'll say a word of prayer? You can pick any translation. To. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, through 14, right? Yeah. You said? 32, awesome. 1 through 14. So Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses 
implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your election of your people and your guiding of them in the wilderness and for your uh, word spoken to Moses and for your gracious decision to change your mind and not be rid of them. So we give you thanks for these events and we give you thanks for this this text this story that's been handed on through the ages thank you for uh, preserving it by your holy spirit uh, up to this very day and we ask you now that in this hour you would guide us by that same spirit uh, to see and hear uh, the word of god moving among us today that we may be uh, faithful uh, bearers of the word for all those listening in and that those listening in may themselves be guided by your spirit to be faithful and fruitful bearers of the word of God. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Eric, uh, what do you, what do you notice uh, fresh <laughs> as you observe this text today? <laughs> what jumps uh, out at you? It's one of those texts that if you're not afraid at the end of it, if it doesn't shake you, if it doesn't make you have all sorts of questions, then I'm not sure that we're reading carefully enough. I mean, I think there are texts like this that we've read or heard so many times before that they've stopped scaring us. So the story of Noah, uh, one of my favorites recently, I've been thinking a lot about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five, and then they, you know, they sell this piece of property, they fall dead, that there's something about reminding ourselves that these texts that we've heard before evoke more than just kind of interest or curiosity in us. I think they can also stir in us uh, 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 some, some fear, some wondering, some questions. So if it leaves us unsettled about what we've just read, that that's actually quite a faithful place to start with. Yeah, that's really good. Leaves us unsettled. Yeah. To lean into the unsettlingness. I mean, mm-hmm. a threat to just end the story there. Right. <laughs> And, and to be like, it's not Moses. like, and it's not God kind of playing with Moses, like to take seriously the narrative. Yeah. Cause I think the, the traditions that we inherit the story from do take this, this story is a kind of a horror show. It's a scary moment. It's um, it's a moment when everything that God had done is at stake. So I think we need to take the story at, at, at the first, like not assume we know how it's going to end, but kind of live into the tension of the moment into that moment between when when Moses asks God to change God's mind and that moment when Moses probably isn't sure 
what God is going to say next. Yeah, it's like and I wonder whatever, if there's something yeah. in our prayer life that's like that too. Yeah. Right? That that moment when we're not quite sure that God is going to answer our prayers. We're not quite sure that God is going to keep God's promises. Or that we're not quite sure how exactly God is going to keep those promises and what 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 the world's going to look like on the other other side of this moment of trauma and, and worry. Yeah, I mean, whatever we I mean, we leave open how to take a text and not just assume quickly. Well, obviously God doesn't change his mind. Right? He's just, right, right, right. It's just testing him or something. Yeah, we know how the story ends. Right. And, and of course that also means leaving open that it may be more complicated than at first glance, but nevertheless, just to put ourselves in Moses shoes means immediately to recognize. It's not like he's sitting there thinking, ah, I see this is just a test, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's not how Moses experiences this. And furthermore, I mean, like you were saying, the, the first readers of this text surely would have caught the threat was in, I mean, it's a little maybe harder for us in a modern context where we may not be as inclined to the, the casting of graven images. But, you know, if that was a, a constant uh, temptation and actual reality in the life of Israel for th- hundreds of years, yeah. that you know, to the, the, the text doesn't work if it's like, well, obviously this is going to work out. It's in order to make you kind of sense, whoa, like, you know, when, when we turn the worship into something else, it there's, should there's generate some fear. Yeah. Something's at stake. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, uh, yeah. And it matters deeply to God and it should matter deeply to us. And yeah. the repercussions of that idolatry resonate an echo uh, way farther than we may imagine at first. Yeah, man. I, for me, observation wise linked to that. I mean, I'm sure you did this on purpose. You you put some emphasis on some, some on the pronouns. It was very clever. And that helped reading of scripture is always interpreted. But verse seven, right? The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. Mm-hmm. whom you brought up out of the land of yeah. Egypt, man, I missed that. It, you saying it helped me see it. And then the emphasis in Moses prayer, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Your people. Yeah. So like they're playing a little game here. Of who's, whose people these are, you know I mean? It's, it's like, I mean, I think of, you know, married couples and say, look what your son did when they, <laughs> you know, so there is a kind of, but that's maybe getting at a little what's at stake. There's already, a broken, the covenant's mm-hmm. already broken from their side, and he's beginning to break it from his side by not referring to them, not only saying your people, that's one thing, but even to say who you brought out of Egypt, as if to say, okay. if faith is broken, I'm not the God who brought them up out of Egypt. There's kind of a wiping the hands of them that's pretty stark. And I think that breaking happens even earlier. So if we go back to verse one, the people say this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, this man who brought us out of, out of the land of Egypt, that among the people, right, they they're said. already forgetting that it was God who brought them out. It wasn't really Moses. And this again, makes me think back to the beginning of the 10 commandments. They don't, the commandments don't start with you shall not whatever, but it starts with, remember, I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. For me, there's something profoundly important here about memory and about agency, about who is uh, who is the one delivering people out of bondage and delivering people into liberation, and how is it that we account for the source of our liberation? Is it this mm. man? Is mm. it God? 
And then there's a mirror there about God's own sense in this story about who the people belong to. Yeah. And it's, it's your people, Moses, not mine, your people. And then Moses almost has to remind God, no, these are your people. Yeah. And I think there's um, a playfulness to the story about God's memory that is echoed mm-hmm. by the lack of memory of the people that I think is, is worth playing with as well. Some, and for us to wrestle with that, I, I think often we find ourselves uncomfortable thinking about a God that needs reminding. Yeah. But that's at the center of this narrative. And it's not, it's not just a play. It, it kind of takes it seriously that, that Moses needed to intercede. here. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that sounds right. I mean, those are, that was the other thing I noticed when I was thinking the sort of imperative, the, petitionary imperatives of of verse 12b and the beginning of 13 there's three verbs right turn from your burning anger Mm. change your mind from this disaster you're intending and remember abraham isaac and israel right so those kind of are linked together and already implicit in the opening line why should the egyptians say you brought you out as if to say like you can say they're not your people anymore but the Egyptians, the Egyptians know, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty explicit that, that this was all you're doing. No one's going to believe yeah. just a man. Moses did all of these plagues. You know, this is, and it's very explicit how the Egyptians are identifying this Adonai as the their god that delivered them. So yeah, the, those plays on memory. That's a good eye. I missed that in the opening line because like, yeah, yeah, Moses brought us out of the land, right? I noticed it that they they do the doubling, right? Just as Moses is the agent through which God brought them out of Israel, they do a parallel because they say in verse one that you already pointed out, Moses, this man who brought us out of land of Egypt, and then Aaron leaves Moses out of it and says, look, here's your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And that's almost the name. I mean, that's that's almost (laughs) a name of God, right? The one who brought them out of Egypt, right? Well, what's so interesting to me is verse four, Aaron took the gold from them, formed it into a mold and cast an image of a calf. And they said, not he, oh, he said. does say, I it's weird, it. but I think yes. I guess here there's a playfulness about the agency. They said, these are your gods of Israel, which you would assume it would be Aaron would be the one who said, so is this the text trying to protect Aaron some, or oh. is this kind of a sense that the whole, this isn't just Aaron doing this, but the whole of the people have drawn together. And there's these questions too about blame later on. I love, we didn't go this far, but when, when Moses confronts Aaron, Aaron's like, <laughs> yeah, it's the awesome. calf just came out of the fire. Yeah, like, it, was just, like, it just happened. <laughs> so again, I think part of what's holding all these stories together, again, the questions about agency, questions about memory, questions about who's doing what are really important here. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I, I almost, I'm thinking, you know, as though when God calls them your people to Moses, it's almost him saying, I mean, maybe this is a bad image, but the washing of the hands to kind of say, okay, they're not going to say thy will be done to me. So I'll say thy will be done to them. That's a favorite line from C.S. Lewis where he's kind of like, oh, you guys want to not recognize me as your God? Okay, then I'm not, right? It's kind of like, uh, uh, you want to be independent? I'll give you your independence. See how that goes for you, you know, in the wilderness. Yeah, Yeah, the people have made known their allegiance in this moment. They've made known how they see the world. And I think part of the the horror of the story, I think, for the narrative, too, is that it doesn't 
take that long, right? Moses is, yes, gone, and he's up in the mountain, but it doesn't take that long. It's 40 days, right? But I'm not sure how much time has passed. Yeah, but it, it's, at, it's at this moment in the yeah. scheme of things, right? After oh, all yeah. that they've gone through, it's the blink of an eye in the scheme of things. Oh, yeah. This is an and again, I think it's a really, months. yeah. Yeah, it's an important reminder for us that I think part of what the story is doing is not just putting blame on the Israelites gathered there, but to remind us the thin line that we often find ourselves into slipping into idolatry, right? Whenever we think God is missing or, or, or God is not with us, how quickly we can turn away. And also then there's something here about God's faithfulness. Yes, God has his moment of kind of going back and forth. But God has already made promises, and those promises in some ways hold God to whatever God has said before. So it's, again, it's it's a kind of a horror show. <laughs> it's a it really is. scary story, but I think it's um, really powerful. I think there's a lot we can do with this text. Yeah. Well, with that said, let's take a quick break and come back and dig in a little deeper. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, first time guest, Eric Barreto. And uh, we're going to, we're looking here at uh, Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. So, like you said, a harrowing text, a wild text. I, I did have some questions for you that maybe we could, and they might be quick ones you can dispatch and then we'll go wherever you want to go. But let's see. One was just understanding like idolatry mm-hmm. culturally either at the time that this is referring referring to or the later yep. history of the text, would the, would the people at least have perceived themselves as constructing an image of the, the God who had saved them, right? Yeah. Like it's hard for us as modern folks yeah. who are used to think, well, idol's just a symbol of a thing, right? But I wonder if like in their minds, they're like, there's two ways to take the, these are the gods. From God's point of view, it's like, no, it's not. That's a thing you just made. Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. which is the equivalent of saying you brought yourself up, which is the equivalent yep. of saying Moses did, right? Yeah. But from their point of view, as having a four hundred year formation in the idolatry of Egypt, you know, like, did they perceive it as we 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 want to objectify this god, but maybe didn't yeah. think of it as switching to a new god, right? I mean, they weren't interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a thought. I, I, help me understand yeah. how idolatry was perceived in the ancient world. I didn't entirely you know, get it. But. I hang out mostly in the New Testament. So yeah, most know, of what I, know, I might I say might, might, <laughs> but I think there is this, this long thread in the scriptures, in the story of Israel that, that goes from the Hebrew scriptures into the intertestamental period and even into the New Testament where these questions of idolatry are always um, coursing through the lives of people seeking to follow the one God of, of Israel because it's a world that is often littered with idolatry. It's, it's part of the, the landscape, especially of urban centers, whether in, in antiquity or in the in Roman antiquity, it's, it's everywhere. So, for example, when I think about Paul's letters and he's writing to these urban centers, these are folks having to walk through architectures of idolatry. Or you think about Acts 17, the story of Paul and the, at the Areopagus, where it mm-hmm. starts as saying that, th- the, that Athens was basically littered with idols. There's a sense that it's part of the architecture of the space. And there are always these questions about how we move through this space, how we interact with these spaces when we're trying to worship the one God of Israel. So the, the function of these, of these graven images is one that obviously scripture is taking seriously. It's um, there are all these stories about 
the problems that come along with it. There are the condemnations of holding other gods before the God of Israel. Partly, I think there's questions of allegiance, but I think for an Israelite tradition, and I think in the intertestamental period, like in the wisdom of Solomon, we see this too, that the problem is that you've taken something created, something that we've made with human hands, and something that's fundamentally good. So the things that we create with human hands is, is a reflection of God's own creativity. God creates the world. And then when we create things, we're participating in that creative activity. There's nothing wrong with creating a golden calf by itself or, right? It's actually, a, it can be a beautiful thing. It can be a wonderful thing. The problem is that we've, and the critique is that you take this created thing and turn it into the creator, that you mistake the stuff of creation for the creator, um, the, the creator himself or herself, right? So I think that's that's the problem that that idolatry lifts for us. And if we understand it that way, then we can start imagining what idolatry might mean for us. Because the problem for us today isn't that we're hiding away a cubby full of of, of golden statues, yeah, but well, that we are still <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm trying not to expose all my sins here, but that, but that we have all, we still take created things, things that are good and beautiful, but ruin them by mistaking them for the creator. Yeah, that seems the link. I mean, that's great. That language from Romans one is so helpful. And of course, Mm -hmm. you know, his, his knowledge of the Torah was shaping his, his, his language there. And that language there is stuff that's found in the wisdom of Solomon. Like it's this long tradition, right? So that stuff that Paul is writing in Romans one is not coming. It's not Paul's creativity is Paul tapping into this ancient concern about idolatry that well precedes him. And like mentioning wisdom of Solomon, that, that the whole idolatry question took on a new layer in the diaspora, right? As the Jews were Mm -hmm. spread out, which is almost a kind of reversal experience of, of the exodus of them be coming out in the wilderness drawn together. Right. Yeah. Cause the temptation yeah. here is not that they would be drawn into the idolatry that's already around them, but that they're creating mm-hmm. their own. Yeah, then the wilderness, right. That's, yeah. that's yeah. the nature of wilderness. Idolatry is a little, different oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. Cosmopolitan idolatry. Yeah. And that, your comment though, links up with what you were saying earlier about agency and also remembering too, but I'll stay with agency. There is an implicit idolatry in speaking of Moses alone as the one who brought them out of Egypt. Yeah, right. Right? Because it's saying this creature <laughs> mm-hmm. is the is the creator or this – of course, the language of creation Liberator is in, this is case, in the yeah. background, right? It's liberation yeah. and and covenant, right? So this this liberated one, this agent of liberation or, or instrument, you could say, of liberation is yeah. being regarded as the agent of liberation – yeah. So there's already an implicit idolatry there. And then it seems it's like to the me first that- slippage, right? It's the first yeah. step, right? And and there's there's something important in naming what Moses did. Like that that yeah. took courage, that took guts, that took listening to God's call upon Moses' life. So it is important. It's not like pretending that Moses had nothing to do with right. this. Right. But it's that slippage from him as a called agent of God to him being the actual agent of liberation. Yeah, well, I mean, like most, uh, well, all sin is a privation of the good. It's always a distortion of good. And so it's, yes. yeah. it wouldn't be tempting if it was obviously the opposite, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right? Like evil always works as a kind of subtle, you know, of course, Moses is to be honored and respected as the, mm-hmm. the prime instrument of, of the liberation here. So it sounds like when I heard you kind of discourse on a doubt, it was really helpful. That in many ways, if you were to, 
I mean, I don't want to be too typical theologian here trying to pinpoint an exact moment, but if you were to think, there's, you that are, initial, there's that initial slippage, <laughs> right? On their part. And then there's Aaron's failure in the actual construction mm-hmm. of the image, but the kind of, the sort of moment of idolatry or where, it re- where you could say it comes to a head is that moment. And that's why it matters. It says they said, that's why I think it's important who the, mm-hmm. to it's, it's the naming of this created object yeah. as the, the creator and liberator maybe is it, would that be fair to say that it's, it's kind of, because uh, of course, once they come to make the temple, there's going to be a lot of decoration. Yep. Right, the the, mm-hmm. the, the crafting of objects yeah. is not a sin yeah. in and of itself, and even but some that, of them have shape like the angels on the top mm-hmm. of the the cherubs on the top of the. Right. I mean, those would be temptation, you know, uh, to to worship. That might be part of the one of the many reasons why there's so many curtains around it, and you don't go in there very often. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. there were are objects uh, of they're holy objects. I mean, that's coming. That's literally what like the next within a few chapters, that's going to be the rest of Exodus is the instructions for the, for, for the, and it's some of the same verbiage is used there, right? The shaping and the crafting and the gold and the. Yeah. Like the, the stuff that human hands can do is really important, right? I mean, there's yeah. going to be all these instructions for how to do this in a way that's honoring to God in a way that, that reminds us that our hands are creating in, in a, in a way that echoes what God does in creation, but it's not the same thing either. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a, there's a difference there. But I wonder then if it's in the declaration and the way that our words, these are your gods, O Israel, then line up with where our allegiance is, mm-hmm. where, and also where we think our lives and our liberation come from and mistaking that, that that's where things go awry. Like there's nothing wrong with the melting of gold and there's really nothing fundamentally wrong with forming a mold or casting it, but it's when we imbue that mold that calf with um, agency that only belongs to God, then that's where perhaps things go awry. So it sounds like you'd concur that though, not in a rigid way that, that, that declaration in four B is kind of, that's the problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think there might be something there. Yeah. I mean, there, obviously there's a, it's a, there's a slippage that ends up there and there's the, of course I growing up in the kind of churches I grew up in, it was like, yeah, yeah, there was idolatry, but then there was drinking at a party. That's when it really <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <the bad stuff. laughs> that was that was the real sin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if anyone said it that way, but that's the vibe I got, you know, with the, in the I, I totally would have heard that. I, I could I could hear that growing up, too. Yeah. Yeah. That it's and of the, course the revelry. That's the problem. Right. But of course, the revelry actually would be. The, I mean, of course, festivals are also mm-hmm. part of the instructions. Right. And so it's. It's the idolatry that renders this festival evil, not yeah. not its not the revelry itself. as such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which parallels uh, your point about uh, about the good being twisted by being lifted up as what it isn't. Well, yeah. One other piece that I think is, is striking here is um, something kind of under the surface. I think in verse seven is as if the Lord just happened and. Like the narrative seems to suggest that the Lord just yeah. happens to notice after the party is over. And I think that there's something interesting here about, again, again, going back to mm. God's memory is did God forget to watch over God's people and only notice after this has all happened, right? What if, what if God had noticed when they were starting to worry and send Moses down to say, Hey, Hey guys, I'll be back in a second. We're good. We're good. We're still working on this. There is this interesting question being asked there about why didn't God notice this before? 
why is it that God almost seems surprised? Go down at once. Your people whom you brought out have acted perversely. And it reminds me a bit here of uh, the story in Luke 15 of the the, the prodigal son. Mm. Um, and Amy, Amy Jo Levine has this really interesting reading of that text. It's in a, in a children's book. She actually renders it really beautifully too. That part of what's happening in that story is about God forgetting to count. Right. So uh, the shepherd forgets to count the sheep and the Mm. woman forgets to count the coins. And then the father forgets to count the children he has, especially the older brother out back, Mm -hmm. almost like they throw the party and they forgot to invite (laughs) the older brother. And I think there might be an echo between those stories about us wondering about where God's attention is. And what it looks like for us, for, for Moses here to intercede. And again, it's asking all sorts of uncomfortable questions, I think, yeah, for us. But really, the narrative is playing with this idea. And I think we can invite people yeah, to, to wonder it, about this. It too. requires loosening the grip of classical theism on our brains to learn how to yeah. read text this way and take seriously the characterization of God. Again, mm-hmm. whatever conclusion one draws ultimately right. beyond the text or in the scriptures as a whole, that, of course, the whole... I mean, this is a, a little microcosm, this chapter of the whole way the action gets started in the book of Exodus, which is that God finally noticed after 400 years that it was going yeah. bad for them. God hears we're the cries of the people. But, yeah. Um, it's been it's a while. Not implied. Well, he always was before, <laughs> yeah. and that's just code for him. Right. This is when he decided to do it. I mean, even if that's somehow philosophically true, yeah. that's not narratively right. true. The, the character and, has been rendered as one who is focused, and he's kind of focused on his relationship with Moses and on guiding Moses and instructing him. And you're right, it is, because it's literally the next day in the narrative, and you almost get the sense, it doesn't say it explicitly, but you could almost play with this, whether this could fit in a sermon or not, depends on your context, but that God's like, you know, talking to Moses, and like, they overhear like, the wait, party. What's that sound? Right? The party. Because it just, Which, it, ends again, on, it ends on the revel. So that was, it's kind of like the, the prodigal son story, where the, the brother's yes. like, what's this? <laughs> That's the... Um, that's at least first I, glance how the narrative flows. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a really interesting question here about, and I love how you put the, the, at the beginning of Exodus, right? Is God hearing the cries of the people after a while? And it's a question that, that Jewish theologians and philosophers asked about the Holocaust. Where was God in the midst of all this? So there's lots of rich reflection on this that we can draw on. And we might think in this moment right now of, reckoning with racial justice in this country again um, Mm. about the kind of faithfulness embodied in African-American traditions that sustain themselves with faith in God in the midst of slavery, right? So to think about, for example, the way that the spiritual songs nourished a faith that demanded God's remembrance, that demanded, that recalled people's memory to these Exodus events often as well. So there are this isn't an abstraction for, I think, a lot of communities to imagine what it would be like to sense, to feel, to think that God had forgotten us, that God had neglected mm. us. And then in the midst of that moment, how do we theologize in that moment? How do we proclaim the goodness of God and the promises of God when it seems that God has forgotten us? That's a helpful thing to bring up, not only as a connection to our own time, well, both, it's a great moment of intertextuality where the text of our own experience actually mm-hmm. helps us see things in the text. Cause we've been hard on the, the people here and their yeah. sinfulness as we must. Right. And yes. yet the generations of trauma mm-hmm. of assuming God isn't listening to our prayers yeah. Yeah. is so ingrained 
that the thought that having been liberated and having a couple months out in the wilderness and some clear instructions to not be idolatrous, the fact is, is those generations of experience are actually the more definitive trauma for them. Yeah. So, so assuming God is, has forgotten yeah. them is actually, even if it is mm. sin and failure, it's, we can, we can validate it. Kind of understand where it came from. Exactly. So even yeah. if it's, it's, it, it, it's not voracious, it's valid, right? So it's, yeah. it's wow. false. It's not true. And yet yeah. it's valid. Of course it makes sense that they would go there. You know, I mean, I mean, you see that even in our own relationships, no matter how well, you know, like when you think of, you know, in a family, in a married mm. couple, no matter how well things are going, how faithful you've been of late, one little act of, you know, a raised voice or uh, you can showing up a little late for dinner can trigger those old memories of, you know, your family of origin experiences yeah. that make you think, oh, you're, you're cheating on me or, oh, yeah. you're you're going to hurt me when you have no reason to believe that given recent experience, but given your sort of originating trauma, of course that's the conclusion that you would draw and that can be validated their experience. There, Does that resonate? This, this notion of kind of generational trauma is, is is for me a way that I thought about, you know, what's happening in this country around slavery and segregation, but it's interesting to think about it in this case too, that these are not just people who just love idolatry. Yeah, but these are folks who've for hundreds of years have have suffered, and there's something about the ways that the the trauma of the past visits us in ways probably that we probably can't always name. Yeah, I mean it takes a lot of work to name it to know where it's come from. But it's this visceral, instinctive protection, right? It's a way to for us to protect ourselves, and I. Th- I think in, in proclamation, it might be really important for us to nourish um, a deep sense of empathy for these folks and yeah. not just say bad idolaters, but to say that, that there's a thin line in our own lives. That it's, an, it's, an easy, it's an easy step to take to get into this moment when we mistake the created for the creator precisely because of the hurts that we're carrying with us and often hurts that we don't, can't even name, that we don't know what they came from. Because they might have been generational. They might have been right. things that we've inherited that we're not quite sure how to even uh, acknowledge. Yeah, we talked about allegiance, but allegiance is usually about protection, right? Mm-hmm. It's to feel safe. And they don't feel safe. Yeah. They feel exposed out in the wilderness. Of course. Without their prophet, uh, without their God present to them, speaking to them, guiding them, yeah. showing himself to him. That all of a sudden the line in the opening makes a little more sense to me because of our conversation now. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. I mean, implicit in that is we don't have that which is before us, right? And I assume it has the double meaning of both leading us, but also over against us, before us to to worship, right? In our presence. Yeah, Yeah, it's 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 um. It's almost uh, a call for a future. Like, give us a future. We need to know where we're going. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think this is a really layered story that both Jews and Christians keep coming, should be coming back to because it is haunting in this way. I mean, it's asking fundamental questions about God's memory, about our memory, about how this relationship holds or doesn't. And I think what's helping me here is if, if we just make it about in our proclamation about the wrongs of idolatry, which is, is I think the first place I wanted to go, Mm-hmm. And we don't get to the moment of wondering, 
what's behind that, that, right. that drive in us to look for something other than the creator to be the creator. And it's not just that we're bad. I mean, yes, we're sinful, but it's also these, these deep desires that we have that are actually good desires, right? Of feeling safe, of, of feeling love, of feeling belonging, of, of, of demanding justice from a God that, that promises it. Those yeah. are all good things, but it's so easy to twist them. Because that's uh, what sin is, right? It's disordered yeah, desire, yeah. right? So yeah. the desire to be safe, to be known, to, to know where you're headed, these are not, they just, they can get out of whack. They're critical to our flowering or yeah. flourishing, yeah. But they can get out of whack. They can get yeah. disordered and attached. Yeah. Well, great. Let's take a break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Eric Barreto, and we're looking at Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. Let's explore some sermon starters. If you were preaching on this text, uh, what direction might you go? We don't have to cook a full sermon, but you know, like maybe a certain theme or a focus, or some of it's about your own prep as a preacher. How do you tend to make that transition from exegesis to to sermon uh, development? Yeah, I think part of it, for me, I think one place to start and one place I'd probably go in a sermon is how do we think about idolatry and how do we think about um, scripture's consistent condemnation, worry about idolatry in a context where we don't practice idolatry in the same ways that are often imagined in both Old and New Testaments in a world kind of littered with um, idolatrous statues. And so what's underneath that? Um, and how can we help people name the ways that they've mistaken the creator for the created in, in their own mm. context. What is it that we're leaning on to give us liberation that is actually imprisoning us? What is it that we're mm. leaning on and trusting in that is as frail as, as our own, as our own wills are. Right. So I think that's one place to go is to say, this is what idolatry looked like in this context. How can this story help us unlock, reveal, unveil the ways that we are participating in idolatrous systems as well? So I, I know, you know, and in this moment in particular, there's these no mo- number of isms that I think we might be able to name as idolatries. And a really important place to start might be to how we think about racism, for example, as a form of idolatry. So not just an impolite thing that we do or just um, a feeling that we have, but it's taking this, this gift that God has given us. So this God creates all these different cultures and hues and languages and says, these are all good. And then we figure out in these weird constructed ways to say, because you look like this, because you come from this place, because you speak this language, then you're not as good as we are, or you don't belong in the spaces where we belong. So there we're taking the place of God and saying this created thing that actually belongs to God. I know what it means more than God does. (laughs) And it's a way to either include or exclude. Yeah. You can see that, especially if you flip the way that racism functions in the formation of one's own kind of racial identity, how easy it is to recognize when, when you just not, it's not easy, how easy it is to do, but mm-hmm. how hard it is to sometimes recognize yeah. that I'm implicitly lifting up one creature as yep. 
above other <laughs> creatures, right? The way they do here. Again, yeah. nothing wrong with the golden calf in principle, right? It's the lifting up and saying, ah, here it is. Yeah. And that can be done in very blatant ways of a superiority mm -hmm. of my race, or it can be done right. in very more subtle ways of just, oh, well, I've worked really hard and earned this, you know, yeah. which, which those words could be in fact, factually true for me as an individual mm -hmm. abstracted mm -hmm. from my context. Right. But yeah. um, that language is even built on an assumption of, you know, my own sort of achievement, you know, it's implying right. that, well, if, if otherwise, then it's on them. And those kinds of lifting of one creature above another, mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, all hierarchies in some sense, I mean, you have to be careful with this because there are, but all hierarchies in some sense are idolatries, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in a kind of a, a ordering of the world that looks different than the ordering that God has, has called yeah. us to right? an ordering of love an ordering of care. Right. So, I mean, right. So, Parents have a different kind of authority than their children do. They yeah, should because in some their kids sense, don't be careful. They don't know enough, right, to to take care of themselves when they're little. You have to nurture them into that kind of agency. But it's but the, that, the idolatry to to remain in parental authority over child for the rest of their life, correct. right? That would exactly. be the disorder. That would be mm -hmm. you could almost say maybe a kind of a fixed fixed hierarchies, sort of yeah. hierarchies rendered permanent. You know, right? And it, <laughs> and it kind of keeps the child in this case from becoming the full image bearer that they're that God yeah. created them to be. And so that, I think that's one way to think about it. So idolatry is one place to start, especially because it's just such a weird category for us. It's not one that we obsess about. It's, I don't know how many sermons I've heard about idolatry yeah. except pointing at the past. So I think one key thing would be to kind of make idolatry something that's recognizable for us yeah. today. No, I think doing that in the first half or third of the sermon would be crucial. And I think what we got to by the end of our second segment, I think it'd be good within that first half at some point to to, to speak to those re root causes like we talked yeah, yeah. of the motivators that idolatry is not just – it's something we fall into because we're afraid. <laughs> we want mm – -hmm. I mean, we, that's when – you know, calls for law and order are more powerful when we have, mm. when we have legitimate fears, right? Yep. When things yep. are, uh, when there's a lot of chaos, we reach for, you know, something when God seems absent, you know, we reach for creatures and make them our gods, you know, yeah. cause it's, yeah. it's, it's terrifying to be without. And so we, again, that can, I think that empathetic take would be good. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine a sermon where, one starts by naming all the things that people do wrong in this narrative and just going yeah. after it after and after it. And then to make that turn where we help people realize that it's not them, it's really us. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And then to nurture a sense of, of empathy for the moment that they find themselves in, but an empathy yeah. that doesn't say, well, you know, they couldn't help it, but an empathy that says we find ourselves in the, in often in, in these in these moments too, when we're so deeply afraid that we're going to reach out to the the nearest creature we've got to put all our hopes yeah. on, yep, and to say what else, what what would be the difference? How else could we do this? Where else can we turn? What does that practice look like? I think that that I think rhetorically it could work really nicely. Yeah, boy, that's I think that's really good. And I wonder. I mean, I don't want to camp on it. We didn't spend a lot of time, but we did at the beginning a little bit. In yeah. the back half, this kind of dialogue, this prayer yeah. um, moment, which could end up being the end, of, end up being the kind of focus of the sermon, which is kind of even if idolatry is that entry point, but mm -hmm. 
but mm-hmm, something about mm-hmm. you know how to how to pray when when God is angry or I mean something like that mm-hmm, right because mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I mean sorry, apologize apologies for my tendency to always have three points but I couldn't notice the three as long as they're alliterative we're good yeah I couldn't help but notice those three verbs I mentioned them already right yeah. asking God to turn from his anger asking God to relent from this disaster. Those are pretty much parallel. Um, But so maybe it's that opening line. There's really three moments in the prayer is the first is an appeal to God's glory and reputation. That is an appropriate way to pray, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. God, do you want to be known as the kind of God that, that uh, lets this kind of chaos play out and then follow up, you know, Lord, you know, don't uh, be merciful. Don't, uh, don't punish us even when we deserve it. And then an appeal to his covenant. Remember your covenant. I had a teacher, Steve Lennox, who would always talk about uh, covenant confidence. Right? The, mm. When you read in the in the scriptures, the the way they pray just seems so cocky and arrogant. Sometimes the Psalms do to our modern pious ears. You know, like, yeah, you can't right. just order God around like this. He's like, no, no, <laughs> this isn't that. This is covenant confidence. You're as yeah. a member of the covenant people. It is not only appropriate but expected that you would call on God to be faithful to his covenant. And when he seems to not be to call him out. So you call Mm -hmm. God out when, when you, you call on God, but you call God out when he doesn't seem to be living up. So I feel like there's a really good prayer sermon here. I mean, I'll make every text yeah. a prayer sermon. I've noticed, I'm known for uh, that. I think this I've, one invites it because he literally is talking to God in an interceding yeah. way. He's interceding on behalf yeah. of the people. Right. And it'd be interesting to, to pray, to preach this, not as a, Here's a pattern of prayer, but the shape of prayer, right? The, the um, not three easy steps to pray, right? Yeah, I don't want to. But the kind of ordering of our lives and our thoughts, so that hmm. our prayer isn't something just that we perform, but something that we embody, right? That 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 call to turn, that call to God's glory, that that call for God's remembrance, is kind of a, a walking, living prayer in what we do too. So it's not just the pattern of things that we say, whether, you know, when we're praying, but a, a way of life as well. Yeah. A way of life. That's, Absolutely. Really challenging. Way and you need, and you need that way of life context because it's precisely because Moses walked and talked with God as it were, or spoke with God face to face as a friend is the line uh, that comes yeah. a little later, I think, uh, or earlier. If you, if you have, if you are enter into a friendship with God, then you are uh, your your awareness of his character and his covenant and his promises come to bear so that when he seems to or just plain is heading in a direction uh, that doesn't uh, jive with what you've known before, uh, you can have the humble boldness to say, mm. Lord, this direction does not make sense mm. to me. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times we, I mean, for, for, uh, forgive me any listeners who've heard me say this before, but the, the not my will, but thine be done is a great way to end a prayer. Bad mm. way to start one, right? <laughs> it's not, like it's a great way to end a prayer. Jesus yeah. actually makes a pretty big ask. He asks, uh, Hey, could I not die for the sins of the world? He basically asks yeah. <laughs> that his whole mission would be, yeah. you know, basically come to a close. Anyway, any, any other way we could do this? Yes. This one. Yeah, yeah. But he bring, but then the final line is, but obviously it's your decision or I wouldn't be praying. I wouldn't be begging you because it's your call, Lord. It's your mm. call. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, 
So yeah, that's a good yeah. final line, but man, yeah. that's not that's not how a prayer starts. A prayer starts with God. What are you doing? This does not yeah. make any sense. This does yeah. not correspond with the promises that you've made. Remember who you are. Remember the covenant that you've made. Be merciful to us. Turn away from this this evil thought. I, I yeah. want nothing to do with it. And the other piece I wonder too about prayer there is the way that prayer can be um, formational for communities as well and for one another. So that Hmm. it's unlikely that any one of us is going to be up on the mountaintop with God and having this kind of like, Hmm. right? Prayer is communication with God, but there's this this narrative element to it that seems um, not like, not like my prayer life, at least maybe yours, John, but not like mine. (laughs) However, the stories being shared with people who are probably not having this kind of experience either. So what kind of community is formed when we pray in this way? So my prayers, yes, are to God, but what does it look like when my neighbors are also hearing these prayers and hearing this recalling mm-hmm. of God's promises? And again, going back to the spirituals, this, when, when, when the, the enslaved folk are, are singing about God's liberation from Exodus it is yes to remind God of what God has done before, but it's also to remind one another of what God has done before and what God's promises are. So that prayer has this horizontal dimension to it too, about the ways that we nurture one another's faith and sometimes hold one another's faith. So that maybe there are moments when I can pray in this way, this bold way that Moses can when my neighbor can, and that my prayer in a sense can be an intercession as well. And there'll be moments when I can't pray like this and I'll need my, my kin to do that work for me to do that, 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 oh, that, that discipleship session's all about. Yeah. yeah. Carrying those who can't always carry themselves. And you yeah. can even say that the relation that the prophet has with the community of Israel yeah. um, is the kind of relation that the church is called to have vis-a-vis the world. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in this intercessory function. I mean, yeah. the, if the, if the church is itself a, you know, mm. a, a prophetic community, Right. Instead of thinking of like, oh, this is a little church, flip it around and say, Mm. this is the world filled with idolatry. Yeah. Right. And And the church stands in the the church intercedes. That's right. And, and gathers before God and calls on God. And, and it's, it's the opposite of how often we pray, which Mm. is to say, Lord, fix this terrible world out there. We Mm. need to make those calls too. bring justice. Amen. But, But, uh, but the way that that is approached is for the sake of the world. Yeah. You know, not just punish this world because it's full of evil, right? Yeah. Re- fix this world uh, because right. ultimately it's good. It's your creation. And yeah. don't turn back on on uh, your faithfulness to this whole creation that you have made, yeah. though it's full of idolatry and all of its forms, even in our modern way. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. the, setting, the setting right of the world then is not secondary or tertiary, right? that God is the agent of setting right of that world. And at the very same time that the hands and the feet of those God has called mm-hmm. are the ones that are going to participate, be um, actors and be partners with God. I don't know what the language exactly we would use. God is the agent of this, but that we don't just get to ask God to do this and then wait for God to do it. There is this call into the world, like, right? Moses was called not just to, uh, keep hoping for the deliverance, but to intercede, yeah. to jump in with boldness uh, in in front of a Pharaoh. Uh, and I think there is this fundamental call to us there as well, not just 
to, to stay in the throne room, but to go out into the world and make a difference. Yeah. And I think that goes back to your agency theme that, I mean, Mm -hmm. you might put however that would come out in a sermon, but to say that, um, you know, back to, you know, just that observation that, you know, yeah, it was God who brought them out of Egypt and it's idolatrous to think it was Moses instead. And yet Mm -hmm. God brought them out of Egypt through Moses. Through Moses. And so we too are called to be instruments of God's liberating agency in the world, Mm -hmm. Um, but Mm -hmm. always glorifying God in it and not as our own achievement. Right. Because that'll just become one more idolatrous subordination, you know? Mm -hmm. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks so much for giving an hour. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I hope it's helpful Uh, to folks. This is a, it's a text that, like I said, I usually hang out on the other side of scripture. So it's fun to, to dip in over here and, and think about the connections between these, uh, these texts and what's happening in the New Testament as well. So lots of fun here. Good. Well, if you had fun, I'll have you back on a, on a New Testament text sometime. Just, well, you know, <laughs> can, you, can, you can always challenge me with stuff I don't know anything about. I, I often have someone the first time, it, my Bible scholar friends, I try, yeah. it's actually not an accident. <laughs> I try to get the New Testament scholars on for an OT class first and yeah. test them. Do yeah, they yeah. have to be the expert or That's can funny. they be out of the, and vice versa? I've had OT people on for a new Testament first yeah. to kind of, oh, fun. I didn't tell you I was doing that, but that's an intentional oh, hey. little trick I do. I, hopefully I passed the test. We'll find oh, out. Oh, you did awesome. You were great. You were great. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thanks so much, Eric, for the time you gave. Thanks uh, to Todd and Eric for their production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. And thanks uh, to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks as always to all our listeners. We appreciate you chiming in and get the word out on the show. If you get a chance, And we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.